On Easter Sunday of this year, a 95-car pileup occurred on Interstate 77 on Fancy Gap Mountain near the border between Virginia and North Carolina. And the accident was caused because the mountain was completely shrouded in fog. One car slamming into another car, slamming into another car because you couldn't see the car in front of you. My mother had come down the mountain about an hour before the accident occurred. And she said she was scared to death. So they crept down the mountain because literally you could not see past the front of your own car. I've driven up and down that mountain a hundred times. And every time I go, I pray, Lord, please don't let there be fog on the mountain today. Well, if you'd never been on that mountain before that foggy day, you wouldn't know the spectacular, how spectacular the view is from that mountain on a clear day. From an elevation of almost 3,000 feet, you look out over this broad valley, this plain, mile after mile after mile after mile, as far as you can see. Beauty everywhere, spectacular. And on days like that, you're not afraid of the mountain. You're not scared of it. But you say, Lord, thank you that I get to see something so beautiful, something so breathtaking. Because something about a breathtaking view inspires hope within us. When we see something that's really dramatic, astonishing, amazing, we catch our breath and we are inspired with hope. I think God intends to take our breath away this morning by the view that he gives us in the passage at which we'll look in just a few moments to inspire hope within us, his people. He blows away the fog that temporarily surrounds us in our lives The fog of personal problems, the fog of work problems, fog of national problems, of which there have been many this week, problems of uh, 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 fog of world problems, earthquake in China, church problems, petty problems, 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 shroud us with fog, and they create fear within each of us, even as an entire city shuts down and sequesters itself. Behind locked doors. Today, God, through his word, transports us out of the fog, beyond the fog of what is right now to the beauty of what will be. And the view is truly breathtaking. You're going to see that. The view is beyond our ability to imagine, but not beyond our ability to believe by faith. And once we have believed by faith, What we will see this morning, once we believe that it will be, we will ask, Lord, what is my part? What do you have for me to do to bring about this beautiful thing that you are about in the world? You know, last week, many of you committed. You came forward. You said, I am going to wrestle in prayer for each other. I'm going to wrestle in prayer for this city. And we did that this morning. We walked around the city of Charleston and we prayed After church, we're going to have an opportunity to wrestle in prayer for God's work around the world. Last week, we committed. We said, I'm going to work hard with the gifts, the resources that God has given me. I'm going to work hard on behalf of my brothers and sisters here. I'm going to work hard to get the gospel out to this city because I know that's how Christ extends his kingdom. When his people commit to use their time and their talents and their resources to get the gospel message out. This morning, we get the long view. This morning we get to see the results, what comes about when God's people commit themselves to to pray hard and to work hard 
to advance the kingdom of Christ. So if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear together the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word as you promised to do. Lord, we do thank you for the beauty, the truth of what we've read this morning, of what will be. And we pray now that as we look at that, we would look at our own lives as well and say, Lord, what would you have us do right now as you take us to what will be? So we commit ourselves to you, to the truth of your word and the power of your spirit to work in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What's striking about these verses is the emphasis that they place on the future, on what will be. In three verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, Isaiah uses the word will be 11 times. Over and over, this is what will be. When President Obama spoke a couple of days ago at the memorial service for the victims who were killed in the bombings, he looked forward, forward to the future as well. And he predicted this. This is a quote. The world will return to this great American city to run even harder and to cheer even louder for the 118th Boston Marathon. Bet on it. If you took the president up on his bet, you would probably win. Probably. But how do you know you would win? Because the president said it, how can you be sure? Is it not possible that the city of Boston could once again be shut down for a tragedy of a different nature? It was good, it was right, the president, to try to inspire hope in the people who who are mourning, who have suffered this tragedy. But the hope that he attempts to inspire is far different. It's far different than the kind of hope that God gives us in the truth of his word. The president's only hope, only hopes that his words will come true. But ultimately, the president lacks the power to make his words come true. God does not. What God says will happen. What he says will be, will be. And through the prophet Isaiah, this is what God says will be. And so you and I have hope, even when we are shrouded by the fog. Hope in the power of God to make things as he proclaims they will be. It's believed that these verses in Isaiah, chapters 2 through 4, that they originally existed as a separate piece of writing of Isaiah uh, before they were included in the larger work of the whole book, and that they were printed sort of like a a broadsheet or a wall newspaper, a big parchment 
that was uh, attached around uh, Israel. You know, 28 centuries ago, before you could post on the wall of Facebook, you had to post on a physical wall. And that's what these chapters were like, sort of like Luther's 95 Theses. Isaiah wrote this, and he, he posted it for the citizens of Israel to read. And the reaction that people had as they stood and read these words of Isaiah probably varied from faithless disbelief, never happened, to indifference, who cares if it happens, or perhaps there were some who in faith believed. You know, for those of Isaiah's day who looked to the strong economy that the nation of Israel was experiencing, to those of that day who looked to the strong military that Israel had, and to King Uzziah who had a fascination with developing new military weapons, perhaps these words of Isaiah had no interest at all. Because those people were only concerned with what is. And if what is is comfortable, then you don't really care much about what will be. If you don't have a longing for something better, if you are okay with where you are, you're not interested in the future. And what a trap that is for the church. What a trap that is particularly for the church here in America the comfortable church in America. If what is, is okay with us, if what is, is okay with us, we may not care much about what will be or our part in it. And that is such a tragedy. That's such a tragedy for us, particularly if it means that we settle. If good enough is okay, is good enough okay with you? But whether you're right now is good, or whether it's bad, or whether it's somewhere in between, it's never okay, no matter where any of us are right now, in the present moment, to ignore God, because He isn't addressing a felt need that we have right at this particular time. You and I are required always to pay attention to what God says to us, what He tells us will be, because He tells us what will be for a reason. Look at verse 2, at what will be. Isaiah says there, because of this vision that he saw, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. The Lord's mountain established. It will be permanent, set up firmly, secure, lasting, durable. People say, this is it. Yes, this is the one. This is the mountain of the Lord, firm and secure forever. And once that mountain is established, once that mountain is identified, verse 2 goes on to say that the mountain of the Lord will be set up as chief among the mountains. It will be the first. It will be the highest. It will be the summit. The mountain of the Lord will rise above everything else one day. Verse 2 continues. It will be raised above the hills. The physical mountain of the Lord's temple was the little mount in Jerusalem, the temple mount upon which Solomon had built uh, the temple for which he is famous, the magnificent temple to God. And while Isaiah was standing in that temple, that glorious temple, he could look out from the temple and see the mountains around Jerusalem that were far higher, far greater than the little mount upon which the temple of the Lord stood. Isaiah could see that. Everyone else could see that. But what is, is not necessarily what will be. And one day, this mountain will be raised above all the others. In Isaiah's day, all religions 
had mountains where they worshipped. They went to the mountain to worship their god. The Greek, you know, they, the Greek gods they believed dwelt on Mount Olympus. But in the last days, the worship of God will be established over all other gods. The physical mountain will not be higher. I don't know. Maybe God will make the mountain physically higher. He can do it if he wants to. But spiritually, for sure, it will tower over all other mountains, all other religions. One day Jesus stood in the temple in Jerusalem, the the temple, uh, the mountain of God, and, and he told the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John goes on to tell us that he was referring to his own life, his own body. The mountain of the Lord's temple is the person of Jesus Christ. Lifted up on the cross, lifted up from the grave, lifted up to the heights of heaven. The author of the book of Hebrews tells the Christians to whom he writes in chapter 12, verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to God. You have come to Jesus. The place where the Lord Jesus Christ is worshipped and exalted is always the best place. It's always the highest place. The worship of the Lord Jesus Christ is the summit of what we can do with our lives. The best, the highest that we can do is worship the Lord, both now and for eternity. The worship of Jesus will reign over all else. See, people in our culture, they look at the church and they look at you and me, the Christians who comprise it, and they condemn us. They condemn us because we are not politically correct. But verses like this will not allow us to be politically correct. The Lord alone will be worshipped and exalted above everything else. Not in addition to Not alongside of, but way beyond and way above. God says so. Right here. And by necessity. By necessity, that means that the worship of all other religions will be proven false. God says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That's my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. If God... If God himself will not give his glory away to another, then neither can we. We can't give his glory away to anyone or anything else either. We can't spread it around evenly so that everyone can hold hands and everyone can be happy. If we're going to believe, then we must believe. And to believe is to believe this. To be Christian is to be politically incorrect. To say or to stand and sing in Christ alone, Christ above all, is very politically incorrect. And so you and I feel the pressure. I feel the pressure. I bet you feel the pressure to keep quiet. To give up. To give in. To just get along. To not cause waves. To join hands with everybody else. Say, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. And then the fog rolls in, and we can't see, and we give up hope. And like the fog-covered mountain, this country in in which we live, which used to feel so solid, which used to feel like Mayberry, becomes a scary place for us. But only when we focus on what is, not when we focus 
on what will be. Look at the end of verse 2. All nations will stream to it. All nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord. All nations, every one of them, will stream to it. Isaiah uses the word stream on purpose because this is what Isaiah saw. Now let me ask you a question. In which direction do streams naturally flow? Do streams flow up or do streams flow down? Down. Down. All right, good. Which direction is the top of the mountain? Is the top of the mountain up or is the top of the mountain down? It's up. How often have you ever seen a stream flowing up a mountain? How many times have you seen it? I've never seen it in my life. It doesn't happen. But God says it will. How will it happen? Because of the supernatural magnetism of the person of Jesus Christ. He says in John chapter 12, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's the power of Christ. The word draw is a word of power. To, to powerfully, magnetically pull even that which opposes, even that which resists. God demonstrated, uh, Christ demonstrated his power on the cross. Their scripture says he triumphed over all powers, not some, all powers and authorities. There on the cross, he made a spectacle of them. There on the cross, scripture says that Christ by his death destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And so, yes, Jesus has the power even to make a stream flow uphill. One day to cause not a trickle of people, but a stream of people to flow to himself. We can't imagine it. People flowing, streaming to Christ, but it will be. We can't imagine people abandoning their worldview, whatever that worldview is, and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord to worship Him. But they will. They'll leave behind every other worldview. They'll leave behind every other philosophy in favor of the one and only true and living God. God says so. We can't imagine people abandoning their lifestyles, the way they live their life, the life that they are enjoying so much. We can't imagine them giving them up, that up. But look in verse 3. They'll say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. Translation, we want to know God's truth so we can live our lives exactly how God wants us to live them. Unbelievable. Many Christians don't live their lives like this. And so we've got to get out of the fog of the present and look at the long view about what will be. Look in verse 4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. At present, in our world, in our country, when the call goes out for war, all our resources, all our resources go to supporting that war. You know, I look at that 1884 organ up in the balcony. And in 1945, this church wanted to replace that organ. They wanted to buy a new one, but you know what? They could not. It was 1945. It was World War II. Where were they going to get the metal to build the new pipes? They couldn't. All our resources are given to war. But Isaiah sees a day when a great reversal is going to take place. Alec Motyer writes this in his commentary. The means of war beat their swords. The practice of war take up the sword, and the mentality of war, train for, learn war, will all disappear. 
The choice of agricultural implements, plowshares and pruning hooks, is symbolic of the return to Eden. People, right with God again. The curse removed. The end of the serpent's dominion. An ideal environment. Ideal because there will be peace with God. No more war. Peace with God. That's what Jesus came to accomplish when he came to earth. So that for people like you and me, there could be peace with God. And when there's peace between us and God, true peace. There's peace between us and others. All of this is what will be. And we can scarcely believe that a world like that, that our world could ever be like this, but it can be and it will be. The challenge for you and for me this morning is not to be detached from it, as if it were far off in the future. The completion of it will be way, way, way at a time far away from us, because we don't know when the time will be. We right now are very much a part of what will be in the future. And so Isaiah gives people hope for the future that must make a difference in their lives right now. Having said 11 times, 11 times in three verses, what will be, Isaiah suddenly jerks his reader back from the future and puts them right here in the present. Look in verse 5. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Right now, let us Walk in the light of the Lord. In Scripture, walking is always or usually synonymous for living our lives. Our lives in Scripture are a path. And that path takes every one of us on a spiritual journey that will end either an everlasting life with Christ in heaven or that spiritual path will lead us to everlasting separation from Christ in hell. Those are the paths that everyone is on. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how are we living that life? How are we walking? And you've got to ask yourself, and I do, where is your path leading you? Some people here this morning are getting close to the end of the path, probably. Some of us here may be about halfway through. As I look around the room at all the young people here this morning... Probably most of you all have a, a long journey in front of you. And you've got to decide right now, what path are you going to get on? What path are you going to get on? What are you going to do with your life as you, you walk along that path? All of us have to make that decision. In what will we invest our time as we walk along our path? And knowing what we know about the future, what will be? What are we willing to do to make that a reality in our lifetime? And why wouldn't we? Knowing what God tells us about the future, just uh, abandon. Abandon what we know already is going to end in failure. It's going to end in futility. Why not abandon it right now? Because we know that we can be on the winning side. In, Isaiah, in, in, in verse 1, Isaiah writes that, what he saw was concerning the last day. In the Old Testament, the last day referred to the, to the time when the Messiah would come. In the New Testament, the Messiah, Christ, did come. And so the New Testament thinker and writer, the last days are right now. We are living right now in the last days. And we are waiting the completion of the days 
for the time that Christ returns, when He comes again. And Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about the end of time. He talks about His return. And He says this, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And He goes on to say, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so when I put those two verses together, what Jesus said, I conclude that all of us, all of us, must be about gospel business as we walk along our path. Because we may not have tomorrow to do it. Walking toward this future that Isaiah describes. Isaiah writes of a day where people will say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. As you walk along your path, how often are you inviting people to walk with you? Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. What we enjoy, we invite others to. Last week, a week ago, I went to the symphony on Friday night. I enjoyed it a whole lot. So guess what I did? I went back again on Saturday night. And I took people with me. I said, you got to come. you got to go with me to the symphony. It is unbelievable. You will love it. What we love, what we enjoy, we invite others to. And so we as believers say to others, come, come with me. Not only because the salvation of their soul from eternal hell is urgent, it is. But we say come because the sight, the view is so beautiful. When we look at the person of Christ, he's beautiful to us. When we look at the life lived in relationship with Him, it's beautiful to us. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Medicine's good for you, and sometimes it heals you. But usually we pinch our faces, every nerve of them, and we wince at the horrible taste of that medicine as it goes down. But not the Lord. He's both. He heals you, And He is good. The Lord is good. And when you have tasted, when you have seen, when you've experienced the goodness of the Lord, only then will you say, come and go with me to the mountain of the Lord. Isaiah saw a stream flowing up the mountain. Is that reality for us in our lives, in our church? Is that what we see? People streaming to the Lord? If not, why not? How often are we living out the gospel? How often are we speaking the words of the gospel to those around us? Today in America, sometimes it seems like we're standing in a dry riverbed. Maybe that's just our denomination. I don't know. There's a little trickle that goes through the parched ground and we look for it. Yeah, there's a little trickle. Statistics show that in what we call the very best, the very, very best of evangelical churches, not liberal churches, the best evangelical churches in America, it takes 20 people one year, 20 people one year to win one person to Christ. I don't think it should be that way when we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Do you? Isaiah saw people going up to the mountain of the Lord to learn His ways so that they could walk in His paths. Here's a picture of eagerness. 
People eager to learn the ways of the Lord. As you walk around your, as you walk along your path, how eager are you to live the kind of life that the Lord teaches you to live in His Word? The transformation that would take place in our lives, the transformation that would take place in our church, the transformation that would take place in our city, and not just here, but I mean all believers. If we would say, what Lord? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? And then do what he says and live how he says. The transformation would be unbelievable. So see, this vision isn't just for someday far removed from us. The vision is for us right now. And the hope that it gives us reminds us we are on the winning side. Do you believe it? Are you feeling battled? Do you feel fog shrouded? We're on the winning side, the Lord's side. It reminds us to hang on even when the fog around us is thick. A better day is coming. A beautiful day is coming for us and for everyone that we bring along with us. You and I have a part to play in making this a reality. We must live our lives to make this a reality. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. I thank you for these verses, for this vision that you showed Isaiah. For your goodness and your grace to show us who are living right now, who are waiting, what is going to be someday. And it is beautiful and it is exciting to us to try to imagine a world where this will be a reality. But it will be, Lord, because you said so. And so I pray, Lord, that we would wrestle in prayer. I pray, Lord, that we would work hard with the gifts that you've entrusted to us to make this a reality. Lord Jesus, you talked about your kingdom growing like the mustard seed, the tiniest seed of all. But that mustard seed, when it's grown, becomes a tree large enough for the birds of the air to to build nests in. Lord, we know it doesn't go from one to the other instantaneously, from seed to full-grown tree. There's growth that takes place along the way. And I pray, Lord, that we would commit ourselves to be part of that growth of your kingdom. Lord, give us an eagerness, all of us, young and old alike, give us an eagerness to know your truth and to live our lives by your truth. Take away the deception, Lord, that calls us to believe that another way is better, that another way is more fun. Convict our hearts and show us the truth that those ways will end in disaster and death. And Lord, help us taste and see, experience in a real way as individuals how good you are so that we will want to invite other people to what we enjoy so much. And we enjoy you so much, Lord, that we want other people to have that same experience with you. Lord, as we commit ourselves to you to do these things, we pray that you would bless us. And I pray again as we pray week after week, Lord, that you would use us here as individuals and as a church to extend your kingdom here in the city of Charleston and around the world. We pray these things as we wait for you to return. In your name, amen.